Welcome to Back to the Future, a limited podcast series where we speak to startups revving to go in a post-pandemic world. We're honored to have Jeff Sutoyo, who is the founder of a cryptocurrency exchange platform in Indonesia. The company's name is Pintu, which means door in Bahasa. And Pintu has literally become the door through which more and more Indonesians have been busy buying and selling cryptocurrencies. Overall, this obviously is a space that has garnered a lot of attention uh, by market players and the general public alike globally and within our region as well. Hence, we're fortunate to have Jeff, who has not only written widely about what blockchain technology is all about, but has also started a number of businesses on the back of growing interest. Jeff, welcome to our OCBC studio and thank you for your time. Perhaps, Jeff, you can start by telling us uh, more about your background and how you became an expert in the world of cryptocurrency, which eventually led, of course, uh, for you to start up the company called Pintu. Sure. Thanks so much, William, for having me uh, here today. So my story started around 2015, 2016, when um, I got my first exposure to Bitcoin. Uh, back then, I was uh, still studying in the States, and um, my first exposure actually came from uh, a friend who who introduced me to Bitcoin and recommended using it um, to move uh, funds between Indonesia and the States. So at that time, I wanted to move money, but going through the banking system was... Um, pricey, I would say, and it takes a little bit of time. It takes like three to five days. Where, whereas at that time, you know, when you're still dealing with Bitcoin, um, the transactions were much faster. It was uh, between five to 10 minutes and maybe cost uh, a few dollars compared to uh, what banks would charge on the magnitude of like $100 or so and uh, takes like three to five days. So back then I was quite amazed, right? Because uh, you have the system which allows you to, um, to move value uh, orders of magnitude much more efficiently than banks did. And so that was like my first entryway into crypto. And I didn't dive um, as deep back then, but the opportunity came around in 2017 when I uh, got a part-time job at Consensus. So that's when I really actually um, uh, dove deep into the ecosystem. Uh, Consensus is a blockchain incubator focused on the Ethereum uh, blockchain. Um, and back then, I I did a project called uh, Liquality, which focused on cross-chain atomic swaps. Um, this is a fancy term, but basically saying that um, a solution that allows users to exchange tokens or, or crypto trustlessly without an inter- intermediary. So uh, if you're if you're familiar with the um, Centralized exchanges uh, like Binance, uh, like Pintu, like Coinbase, those are all centralized exchanges where there is a central authority um, that does the swap um, off-chain. Um, but with cross-chain atomic swaps, everything happens on-chain and trustlessly without a without a middleman, essentially. I see. I think more generally, I was wondering, um, I have read your thought pieces and um, white paper on mm-hmm. crypto. They're among the clearest explanations, I must say, uh, that have come across so far. For the benefit of listeners, uh, could you dissect uh, what on earth is blockchain exactly? Perhaps analogy on literally there are blocks of stuff that are chained up. I think that I find that very useful. Sure, sure. So in its core essence, uh, blockchain is just simply a, a ledger, right? A shared ledger that has no central authority uh, managing that ledger. Um, in your traditional financial system, so you've got centralized authorities, whether it's in the case of banks, central banks, or other financial institutions, who each in their own right manage their own databases. And so they became the central uh, 
um, authority for that database and also um, central point of failure. Um, and so in the, in the case of blockchains, right, you've got this shared ledger with, where everyone have access to and you can um, and basically anyone can trust and verify transactions on this shared ledger. It's open and it's open and permissionless in nature. And what happens in the in the background is um, essentially um, transactions and accounts get recorded in a block and these blocks are chained up. So you've got one block that maybe let's say um, um, includes transactions for the past X amount of time and then once that's recorded uh, for the next period of time, another block gets uh, uploaded and recorded to the next batch of transactions. And so the key characteristic of a blockchain is that it's immutable. I think that's something that's um, uh, one of the core principles of blockchain, which means that once a block has been recorded, you can't go back in time and change um, the transactions that have been recorded. And so now you have like um, a very pure uh, and clean ledger with set of transactions that you know you can trust um, and it's not changed or altered um, historically. See, Interesting, listening to your description reminds me of when my two-year-old daughter uh, play with uh, Lego and Duplo, uh, but in this case, I guess the Lego and Duplo will be stuck and stuck forever. Uh, the immutability uh, of blockchain that you, you mentioned earlier. Now, what do you think um, has happened over the past year or so. What is it of a pandemic um, that has caused another upsurge in the interest of uh, blockchain technology in general, and especially on these uh, major coins, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum? So I think the key, um, the key here in this sort of like bull run in the crypto, uh, in the crypto market is primarily driven by um, macroeconomic policies. I think, um, as you're very much well aware. Um, quantitative easing uh, and printing of the U.S. government, as well as a lot of the other governments around the world, is putting a lot of liquidity into the financial system. And I think all that liquidity is searching for yield. Um, that's why I think um, the first uh, market to, uh, um, to appreciate this was the equities market. We saw a massive bull run there. And once that's sort of like um, plateaued off, you get part of that liquidity going into the crypto uh, economy and the crypto ecosystem. Um, and on the backdrop of this, the narrative that we're really pushing crypto is the narrative of Bitcoin as a digital gold. As we see inflation going up uh, and um, liquidity in the system, like Bitcoin becomes a narrative that makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. Um, especially that you, especially that now you have like a digital gold that um, has a lot more strengths than traditional physical gold. So I think in this backdrop, a lot of people would have expected um, initially that gold would be one of the best performers, right? But what we saw in the last um, few months to a year is that Bitcoin has outperformed it. And I think it's because it sucked up part of that um, liquidity that it should have gone into gold. Thanks for tying in with the macro um, global backdrop. I think there's definitely that sort of um, transition or, or substitution, at least, of the thinking behind, you know, either owning gold or owning uh, some of the cryptocurrencies in terms of the portfolio allocation, for instance. We've heard talks about how um, high, high, um, high net worth individuals or even um, 
top institutional investors might just be looking into this space. What I wanted to find out also is that obviously when we talk about crypto, uh, Bitcoin comes to mind. But uh, there's fundamental differences, um, as I understand, between Bitcoin and some of the other uh, coins out there, including Ethereum that you'll be working closely with. Can sure. you maybe uh, help us here in terms of understanding the differences and do they matter? Yes, um, actually they, they do matter a lot. So each blockchain is a little bit different in the way it's uh, built. I think since the very beginning, Bitcoin has been um, has been very um, clear that it wants to it wants to uh, focus on being uh, sort of like the store of wealth, um, store of wealth crypto, um, and it takes shape in a number of ways. Right, it has a limited supply, twenty one million bitcoins, and um, in the way that the transactions are are mined and recorded on the blockchain. Um, it's also very different than, let's say, Ethereum. So for the Bitcoin blockchain, you can only use it to do transactions, um, sending from one um, address to another address, right? Where Ethereum is fundamentally different. And so, so f- first of all, I think with Bitcoin, I see it more of as like a, a digital gold, whereas as Ethereum, I see it as, a, as an oil, digital oil. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit more on this. So with Bitcoin, because of its scarcity, because of um, the way transactions are recorded and um, its use cases, I think it's great, and I think it's played out as a great narrative for like a digital gold. But for powering like the digital economy and decentralized finance, I think uh, Bitcoin will fail a little bit there, where Ethereum will pick it up. So the way Ethereum is built is it's basically a virtual machine, right, um, where you can create applications on top of Ethereum and run um, sort of like financial programs on top of it. So people go out and build um, these decentralized exchanges, um, these borrowing and lending platforms that are all decentralized in nature and use Ethereum as a ledger, as a fundamental like um, foundation. It sounds like one key difference to me uh, from the explanations that Ethereum um, is a lot more open source then Bitcoin, is that a fair characterization of the differences? I would say both are similar in terms of openness, uh, but in terms of like the crypto itself, um, you can you use Ethereum to pay for transactions um, on the network. So let's say you run an application on top of Ethereum, you use the Ether to, to process these transactions. And there's a lot more use cases, just like oil, that you can use on top of Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas with Bitcoin, it's, it's primarily, I think, uh, the narrative that sticks is a store of wealth. Okay, I see, I see. I guess to follow up on your analogy of Bitcoin being digital gold and Ethereum being digital oil, uh, or the oil part, the Ethereum basically lubricates yeah. the whole functioning of the digital economy space a lot more than, um, say, Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, in, in essence, you can use it just like oil, you know, to run things. I see, I see. That's interesting. Well, be it um, Bitcoin or Ethereum, uh, both uh, have been very volatile, mm-hmm. as you know, and, and they've run out in prices a lot. They've also been very volatile. And I think one one sort of um, explanation or, or factors to consider is the idea that, you know, um, cryptocurrencies are meant to be potentially uh, one day down the road be uh, substitutes for fiat currency as we know it today. But at the same time, as economists, I look at um, nature of money and money is supposed to be uh, quite stable. 
uh, in terms of value. How do you square that in terms of how Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum and the likes have been uh, quite volatile in terms of value at the same time, you know, uh, they're, they're supposed to be at some point uh, be substitutes for fiat currency? That's an interesting point you bring up because initially when Bitcoin uh, was first uh, sort of like came into existence, the narrative was digital money, right? And I think over the years, that narrative has sort of like changed. And I think this happened because of a number of reasons. I think first of all, it's because of the price volatility. But another reason is because uh, the transaction costs and uh, the time it takes to process transactions is getting much more expensive and takes much longer. And so you can't really use the Bitcoin, um, the Bitcoin blockchain now as a payments infrastructure because it's just not efficient enough. Um, and to be able to be used as a money, you need to be able to use it. You need to have a, uh, a very competitive payments like processing time and cost. And, and so I don't think uh, Bitcoin will end up being, in my own personal opinion, like digital money. I think it will be the digital gold narrative makes a lot more sense. Where I think um, fiat would still, and I think, you know, so I, I don't think Bitcoin will replace fiat. I think they will live in a parallel existence. I think you still need fiat for day-to-day -day transactions um, and also to have a stable value without volatility, right? So that's part of the reason why we, we also built um, the Rupiah stablecoin. Yeah. Because we believe that um, you can't use a lot of these cryptocurrencies for day-to-day -day transactions. You can't be paying coffee in Bitcoins and have the, the Bitcoins like plunge in value or appreciate by, by that much. It, it doesn't work for businesses. And, and so we think the middle ground is having fiat, but on top of the blockchain rails. Okay, so you mentioned Rupiah token, and that's obviously um, the company that you founded before uh, you look into Pintu, the exchange. Um, you can walk us through a bit more on that. I know from the description you mentioned uh, it's a stable coin. It's meant to mimic Rupiah, uh, the Indonesian currency. Um, how, how do you do that and, um, in, in layman's terms as much as you can? Sure. So it's, it's very simple. Um, Rupiah token is a one-to-one asset-backed token. Um, and asset backed with actual rupiah in banks. So the way it works is that whenever customers or users come to us and deposit one rupiah, we'll issue one token uh, and send it to their wallet. And vice versa, when they want to uh, redeem that token, they'll send the tokens to us and we'll send the, back the one rupiah to their bank account. And so there will always be the same amount of uh, tokens in circulation as the amount of rupiah sitting in the bank account. And that's how we maintain that one-to-one -one pegged. I see. So in a way, if we can go back to the um, you know, 1940s, 1950s, essentially this is like back when US dollar was backed by gold. In this case, your, your rupiah token is backed by uh, rupiah itself. Rupiah. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Well, um, to, to zoom out a bit, uh, Jeff, uh, I think you know, we, we, mentioned, we talked about how volatile cryptocurrencies has been and how hot it has been, right? So the two things, even though um, you know, had some internal conflict in there, but some say precisely because it's so volatile, that's why there's been such in investor interest, especially retail investor interest. I think the YOLO and FOMO uh, <laughs> psychology at play here, the, the fear of missing, missing out and you only live once, you might as well leave high. So I think a lot of people will say, um, you know, we might, we might well be buy higher, high, but also selling even higher. Now, zooming in on your cryptocurrency exchange, Pintu. Uh, have you seen this phenomena playing out in terms of, say, 
account openings, transaction uh, volume? How, how has it how has it been growing um, in the last year or so? So, we've we've been growing exponentially, especially since uh, December, January, and February. Uh, those are really big months for us, and I think you'll see the same with a lot of the other um, crypto players in the ecosystem. Um, we're we're all reaching new highs and reaching new all-time highs in terms of account openings, uh, transactions, uh, transaction volumes, and a lot of it is, I think, obviously driven by um, speculation. I think um, for retail, especially, it's it's still. Um, a little bit of speculation, but now you also have a strong support coming in from institutions, right? Who have a longer term view um, and don't have as hot of a hands. Um, so it's not really hot money. And so I, I think what might play out will be very much different from what we see in the last few cycles. Um, for example, in 2017, that was pure retail speculation. But now I think you have much more smarter money coming in. Who have a longer term view, who understand the fundamentals, who are not as easily shaken out by the price swings. Interesting. Um, in terms of the, because of the volatility, because of the interest uh, from public, have you seen increased regulatory um, scrutiny? I understand like Pinto itself is regulated by Bapati, that's the equivalent of CFTC, the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission in Indonesia. Yeah. Um, is that a unique setup or is it quite common for exchange platforms and how has it affected the, the, the scrutiny so far? So I think the government of Indonesia um, is very much supportive of uh, the adoption of cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Um, the President Jokowi, I think uh, one or two years, maybe two or three years ago, um, made a public statement um, that um, the Indonesian government should um, should adapt to te- new technologies coming out. He, he mentioned a few technologies, and one of them being uh, Bitcoin and blockchain. And so I think uh, from the very top level, you've already got that support. And we're very lucky in Indonesia that we're one of the countries that um, um, have black and white regulation um, around cryptocurrencies and blockchain. So it's very much, it's much more easier for the players in, in Indonesia to navigate the regulatory landscape. So Bapapti, the Indonesian CFTC, sort of like adopted a, an approach very similar to what the United States did. Um, in terms of its application. And the way it works is that um, the CFTC has sort of like separated in the regulation, they, they, they've separated the functions, the core functions of, uh, of how people buy and sell crypto in a very similar way as they, the financial markets regulate um, securities exchanges, right? So the way they did, they've done it is that they've, they have um, the exchange the custodian, the clearinghouse, and uh, the brokerage. So I think it's it's very similar in, in setup as the uh, uh, the financial markets, and it's it's very it's benefited a lot. Um, I think the the players in Indonesia because it gives us a very easy way to to build up our our uh, products, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I can't say the same thing uh, for a lot of other countries even in, in Southeast Asia sure. where governments are still struggling to to create the uh, the framework to regulate this mm. indeed I think um, it's still in some ways you know this this space has been developing for quite a while but in some ways it's also quite brand new for regulators 
Uh, and another another area that we look at, I mean, back when I was at the IMF, I think uh, essentially I think a lot of uh, central banks um, they get together and they try to understand this better through forums organized by the IMF. And one thing has come up obviously is the development potential development of central bank digital currencies. How do you see um, the central banks going to this space? How will it change the nature of uh, what? the value proposition essentially of Bitcoin, of Ethereum being decentralized away from authority. And yet now we have this ironic development potentially of the authority itself delving into this very space that's supposed to be decentralized, etc. So that's very interesting. And I think uh, different governments approach it in a very different way. Um, if I could put it in two broad buckets, you've got the, um, the closed and permission system, which is I think adopted by China. The Central Bank of China, and, and you've got the open and permissionless um, approach that is adopted by the United States. Um, and it's very similar in nature to their characteristics um, and how they also manage their internet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, in essence, the Chinese government wants to control, you know, uh, the flow of information, um, and the U.S. government is a little bit more open in nature. And so you, you see that the Chinese government sort of like roll out their CBDC in a very controlled manner. They, they onboard financial institutions that they can trust and, um, financial, uh, and also like wallets, uh, like um, the, the WeWePay, right? Uh, WeChat Pay, um, Alipay, and, and so forth. And so they do it in a very controlled and precise manner. Um, accessibility is difficult, I think, for uh, participants who don't have existing relationships with um, the central bank. So I think adoption in this Chinese model, in the closed model, will be a little bit slower. Um, whereas on the in the open and permissionless approach, um, it's catching like wildfire. Um, because it, literally anyone, I think, um, can can have access to that and and can uh, build on it in a much more in a much faster way and can be very experimental uh, with it. So in the U.S. now, I think there's uh, a couple of uh, U.S. dollar-backed stable coins. Um, the biggest, primarily, being uh, U.S. dollar tether. Uh, I think the second most uh, adopted is U.S. dollar coin USDC, uh, developed by Coinbase and the team from Circle. And so I think um, the government of uh, the U.S. And the OCC's office have um, have have if I'm not mistaken have already signed off on these um, sort of like digital currencies. They don't say it's central bank issued, but um, they're still considered as digital money. Interesting. I think just to wrap up, we've touched on quite a few uh, segments uh, aspects of this cryptocurrency, but fundamentally, I guess um, one of the things that we're, a lot of young listeners, especially would be keen to know from you, uh, Jeff, is, you know, where do we go from here in terms of cryptocurrency development uh, in general, but also in terms of price? What do you think? Uh, Sky is the limit. It just takes a few um, more tweets from Elon Musk. (laughs) Ah, That's interesting. Um, Elon Musk definitely plays a big role. I think um, he's caught the attention of the whole world, right? Um, But when... When we're when uh, when we're working in Pinto, like we believe in the future of decentralized finance, and I think we're very much bullish on that. Apart from uh, uh, Bitcoin and the other main cryptocurrencies, we think in terms of the macroeconomic policies right now that we have around the world, like Bitcoin makes a lot of sense. Um, but beyond that, we really believe that decentralized finance is going to power a lot of the future of 
financial transactions and financial activity. Um, and so if I think if for the, a, lot, a lot of the young listeners out there, or listeners, um, I think it might be worth it for you guys to, to dive a little bit deeper into decentralized finance, um, DeFi. Uh, me, myself, and the team at Pintu, we believe that this is probably going to be the future of finance. Thank you for that. So DeFi uh, is the keyword as we end this podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you again, uh, Jeff, for sharing your thoughts on cryptocurrency. A very, very hot space and you're a very busy man. So thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for having me, William. Uh, appreciate it. And that was Jeff Sutoyo of Pintu. He shared his insights on the drivers behind the massive uptake and interest in cryptocurrencies and discussed how he's built his business from scratch to ride that big wave. This now brings us to the end of the fourth episode of our Back to the Future podcast, where we've been talking to founders and players in the innovative companies across the region. Now join us next week to hear from Eddie Christian Ng. He has successfully built his startups, including one that utilizes blockchain to broaden financial inclusion in Indonesia. He's now helping to foster the startup ecosystem as a whole at Scala Capital. Until then, thank you and goodbye. This has been a podcast from OCBC Bank. Follow us on Spotify for more episodes like the one you've just heard.